This is Corolla Digital. This week on For Crying Out Loud. I had a I had a job interview um, at ABC, right when ABC did the, the Man Show pilot. Okay, so it was supposed to be on ABC. The guy over at ABC, I, I sound like I have a lisp because I got this thing in my mouth. I at the dentist yesterday. Um, when I was at ABC, <laughs> uh, uh, I went to the interview. Okay, so I had an interview, and... It, they just did the pilot for the man show, and I was meeting with the guy, and he said, um, I, I was dating Adam at the time, but I didn't say anything. And I said, did you see the man show pilot? And it was right after pilot season. They didn't pick it up, obviously. And um, he said, yeah, yeah, we did. We got a lot of laughs when we watched that. Why? Did you know somebody? And I said, well, yeah, I said, I, uh, um, I, uh, my boyfriend works on the show. I didn't say his name. Right. I didn't, you know. And then the guy goes... Well, he turned out to be my boss later, but he goes, I, I liked it, but I would have rather seen Norm MacDonald as the, instead of that Adam guy. <laughs> Check out an all-new episode of For Crying Out Loud this Friday, or go to cryingoutloudshow.com, only from Corolla Digital. From Level 5 City in Glendale, it's This Week with Larry Miller. Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America, and everyone who knows crooks. Hi, folks. Welcome back to This Week with Larry Miller. I'm Larry Miller, but in a way, aren't we all? And before we do anything at all, I I always thank them up top, but they're terrific. They make me smile every week. That's, of course, the Tom Lupoff Orchestra and the Francie Ann Dancers, featuring boy tenor Jerry Riddle asking the musical question... What do you call a beautiful woman on a trombonist's arm? Sometimes these questions get better and better, and you have no idea what they mean. We have so much to talk about today. By the way, the answer to that, the answer to what do you call a beautiful woman on a trombonist's arm is a tattoo. So that's just in case any of you were wondering, should I get one? And as long as we've uh, hit that point, why don't we say, and by... Amazon. That's right. It's great to be sponsored. And uh, we're going to have 100 sponsors one day, maybe tomorrow. But uh, for now, we love Amazon. We've been with them a long time. And as you know, Amazon is the great thing on the Internet. You can go and punch in Amazon, and it'll take you to Amazon, and you can get anything in the world you possibly want. Everything in the world that's made to buy, you can buy on Amazon, with the exception, of course, of an actual Amazon. And if you get one of those, please call us first. Because we have the experience and we're willing to offer it to you. But do you go to Amazon? The answer is no, you don't. You stop and you don't go to Amazon. You never go to Amazon. You know why? What you do is you go to our website first, which is LarryMillerPodcast.com. All right. (laughs) Colonel Jeff and Dr. Chris were both punching their arms up high in, in happiness because it wasn't on the screen. And I, I've done 100 of these shows, 200, and I still don't know what the actual website is. But it's LarryMillerPodcast.com. You go to LarryMillerPodcast.com, and there will be a banner there that says Amazon on one of the corners, the upper right-hand corner. I don't know because, of course, I've never been on it. 
But you go to the upper right-hand corner, there's a banner that says Amazon. You punch that on LarryMillerPodcast.com, and that will take you to Amazon. You still get everything in the world you want from there, but this time they're very kind and give us a certain percentage of everything you have bought. And that's terrific because then we get new hats and underwear. So uh, remember, that's always go to Amazon, but never go to Amazon. Always go to LarryMillerPodcast.com, and we will take you to Amazon, which is also the time for now something a little more sentimental, something that reflects our, our views on life more, and it is one of my favorite parts of the show. That's right, the Poetry Corner. This is, speaking of poetry, I went to one of my books on the shelf in my office downstairs, and it has the complete poems of William Shakespeare. And you know it's a classy edition because they have to spell out William on that. You know, now really, a Martian could land, and if you just said Shakespeare, and the Martian would say his first words of English would be, is that William Shakespeare? But still, that's how you know it's a classy edition, and it was translated from Latin into Greek, then back to Latin, then into English. But you really can't beat Shakespeare on so many levels, and I hope you know that. It's really worth it. That's why it was a good place to go to one of the sonnets. This is Sonnet 18. I was looking for something that had a couple of lines in it you would know that came down in society, came down in literature, that we've taken so many things we got from Shakespeare. And the sonnets, as I hope you know, are, are a specific amount of lines. They're all the same length. And the, this this is one I think you'll like anyway. And it'll put us in a nice mood thinking of love and responsibility to someone we care about. Okay? These don't have titles, by the way. They just have the numbers. That's what I like about this. It's enough. It's in there already. But so you don't have to say really, really beautiful poem. So this is number 18, a Shakespeare sonnet. That's, of course, William Shakespeare. So here we go. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed, and every fair from fair sometime declines. By chance, or nature's changing course, untrimmed, but thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest, nor shall death brag thou wanderest into his shade, when in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe, or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. Now, that's really beautiful, I think. And by the way, all sonnets have that little couplet at the end where they sum up, and it's a different rhythm and a different length. So long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to ease, to thee, rather. So it, it's really wonderful when someone is that beautiful, when a man... Loves a woman. Isn't that a Percy Sledge song, by the way, or something like that? Is that where he got it? That would be neat if it was, wouldn't it? That he, would, that he was reading a sonnet one time. But you know what? When you really care about someone like that, it's a beautiful way to put it. That's why poetry is so great. 
That's why Shakespeare is so great. It's a beautiful way to say, you know what? It's nice every once in a while to stop and say how pretty someone you really love is. And uh, that takes us into something I wanted to talk about today because something happened today that reminded me of a great line of Jimmy Breslin's when he said, crime just isn't funny anymore. Jimmy Breslin still is just such a great writer, but came through the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, not only as a great columnist in the newspapers in New York, but boy, what a great playwright, what a great novelist, what a great... He wrote The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight. He wrote so much. A brilliant, funny, and really deep man. And really, he was exactly right, especially in New York, especially in the sewers of New York, so to speak. Crime just isn't funny anymore. This is where, as he, as he thought, you know, everybody kills everyone. The Russian gangs, the Jamaican gangs, doesn't matter what it is, they just kill everyone. They go to the house, kill everyone, kill the whole family, kill the dogs, everyone gets killed. But it's not the days when he felt he could really be funny writing about it. And my dad had some contact with this that used to always make us laugh. Now, here's the thing that's funny about life. See, my, my dad had no job when he married my mom. In those days... Just, you know, after World War II, this 1948, and uh, you, you would meet someone, and if you liked someone, then you would care about each other. And if you cared about each other, it was time to say, all right, you know what? Let's somebody go get a hoop, hit the knee, and, and let's get engaged. And my mother used to love to tell the story. On their first date, they went to a hamburger restaurant after going dancing. That's a class night, isn't it? Let's go dancing. And then, are you hungry? We'll go to a hamburger place. And these were not fast food places, by the way. But my dad, God bless him, they're both gone now. My dad, she loved telling how he got a hamburger and a slice of onion on it. Now, this is not, this is not broiled onions. This is a slice of onion where someone takes the onion and goes, and takes that slice and puts it on the hamburger. He was so happy, and my mom was thinking, and, and she was correct in this. She was thinking, does this guy want to kiss me tonight? Is there anything happening in that regard? Does he, does he think that we want to hold hands? Is anything happening here? And you know what? Turns out uh, there was. But he had no job when they got married, and he used to do certain uh, things. One time he was, and he did this for a while, he used to sell... He worked for the Carlings Red Cap Ale Company. Remember, there used to be 300 or so breweries in New York City, and they don't have that anymore. They have two or something like that, and that's not counting apartments. But the, So my dad would sell these you know, beers into places coming in the morning, and he worked in the factory. He used to tell me, in fact, and I think this was just an amazing image. So in those years, in the late 40s, he said, they would give you whatever beer you could carry out of the factory every day. So if you worked at a beer factory, now this doesn't mean you could carry out four cases that were sealed. It just meant that you could carry out whatever cans you could carry, and they were all loose. But if you could carry 15 or 20 cans, you could carry that out. And it wasn't to the car either. Remember, this is New York. So you wouldn't carry them to the trunk of your car because you didn't have a car and there were no trunks. You'd carry them to the subway, and then the subway would take you, presumably with all the beer still in your arms, back to your apartment. But I always thought that was neat, that at the end of every workday, whoever worked at the factory could carry home whatever beer he could carry. And that wasn't really making enough uh, money for them, so he decided they 
there was a job available. You could check in those days the want ads, and you could actually potentially get a job from a want ad. And there was a company that sold fountain pens. Does this tell you how long ago this is, by the way? They were selling fountain pens. Just before a week before that, they were still selling cranks that started cars. But can you imagine that? They sold fountain pens. My dad, after working at the brewery, and before he'd go home, we had an apartment in Brooklyn on 84th between 4th and 5th. And before he'd go home, he took the trains, borrowed someone's car. This is what you had to do. Did anybody have a car? Bill has a car. Bill, let me borrow your car. And he drove out to New Jersey on a pouring rain winter night. And it's really, really pouring. And so between getting on the subways and on the regular trains and to the borrowed car, he was just drenched to the skin. He gets to the factory, the pen factory, gets to the guy's office, who's the head of personnel, the head of personnel. There were four guys running this office, so there's no head of personnel. It was a guy. It was a guy who hadn't gone home yet. And my dad walks in the office, and uh, he motions for him to sit down, and he says, uh, looks at the card, he said, well, well, let me ask you something, Mr. Miller. What makes you think you can sell fountain pens? Now, my dad is drenched to the skin. He's soaked through, through all the underwear, through all the clothes to the skin, and he exploded at the guy. Now, if you and I would consider it exploded. It's not exploded the way you see in movies or something. He just said, what in the heck do you have to know to be able to sell fountain pens? If whatever I've done here to get here to get here in the rain and to get here before going home and seeing my family. If that doesn't show I know enough to sell fountain pens, what the heck do I have to know to sell fountain pens? By the way, as he told me, that story is all true, except he didn't exactly use the word heck. And so for him, that was pretty wild. And this is just two guys at 6.15 on a Thursday evening, somewhere in the middle of New Jersey when it's pouring out. And the guy was smart enough, of course, to say, you know what, sit down. And they talked for a few minutes more there. And the next day, my father started selling fountain pens from a suitcase he got in New Jersey. But that just goes to show you, we wouldn't probably do that these days, most of us. You know, when you meet someone and if you decide you love each other and you're going to get married, well, isn't there something involved where then the girl gets to go back to her parents when they say, what does he do for a living? They get to say, oh, he's a blank. Oh, He's an auditor. Oh, he he's a, he's whatever it is. He does taxes and anything at all. Oh, he's he's a doctor. Oh, he's a barber. Whatever it is. But in those days, they just said, "So what does he what does he do for for a living?" Well, he's healthy and he walks around and he certainly likes onions. So that was close enough. And in those days, though, that's that's what it was. And then my dad, at a certain point, decided, you know what? He wanted to go to law school. You didn't need a college degree in those days to go to law school. And after my dad got out of the service, it was true in every in every way that they, they'd pay for everything. But they still have – it's, I think, one of the two places in the United States that still has an evening law school, which is Brooklyn Law School. And they still have folks who go there at night. I think it's still about 15 or 20 people who go to become lawyers at night. I think also, I could be wrong on this, but I think also there's one here in L.A., the Southwest Law School. I think they still have a night school as well. But Brooklyn Law School still has a night school. My dad went there, and he did just fine with it. Now imagine, here's a guy 
He already has kids. He's selling beer to bars early in the morning when there are still guys there from the night before. <laughs> you and I would have been one of those guys, by the way. Then he'd go sell fountain pens. Then he'd get ready to go to law school, which was after dinner at home. My mom, God bless it, there was a good family store we always had because they didn't have much. They were as happy as they could be in a little below-ground apartment in Brooklyn. But you know what? He was happy and she was happy. And that's another that's another thing about love, by the way, when you can do something for someone and not look for something in return. Not right away, anyway. But the the point is that they they were they were happy together like that and my dad became well a law, a lawyer but he became a lawyer that wasn't remember the kind of law school you go to Brooklyn law school at night that wasn't the kind of law school like a, like a Tom Cruise movie where they say they start bidding on you go well you know you graduated number 1 from Harvard so we have 80 firms that want to pay you a million dollars an hour to come with them he defended guys, not that he grew up with, but guys who were crooks. That's why I started by saying, if you know any crooks, they were, well, crooks. Now, it wasn't like a movie. It wasn't like Goodfellas where they're, hey, they're all nice to each other, and then they strangle someone in the backyard before having a hamburger. Maybe it was like that, come to think of it. But he used to tell me they would never pay him. They, they would always say, hey, Mr. Miller, you need some suits? Because they were going to steal suits to give him. They didn't want to pay anything. No, I don't. Thank you. I don't need any. Thank you. Why don't we just go on the deal we came up with and you pay me? And it was what we would consider nothing comparatively. It was, you know, $120 that they then owed him. But no, they didn't want to pay that because they didn't want to pay anything. You need some suits? No. No, I thank you. I don't need. Hey, how about a wash machine? Your wife need a washing machine? We can get one of those. We can get it like now. We can get it in the next half hour. No, you know what? Thank you very much, but please just don't get anything. We're not looking for any goods. Just please pay me what what you owe me. And these guys, by the way, were were nice enough and had good barbecues, by the way. It's so funny. I remember going over to houses of some of these guys, and they always had new things, always new things. You'd see a couch and carpeting. Hey, what's it? when did you just get that? Yeah, we just got that. Where'd you get it? Well, it's new. It's brand new. Because they didn't get it from any place. You know, what they did was they took it from someplace. In fact, one guy used to uh, take us to this Chinese restaurant he owned. He was an, He's an Italian guy, a mob guy, but he owned this Chinese restaurant. And I, I remember saying to my dad at one point, it's a little odd that uh, he owns the Chinese restaurant because he's Italian, he's not Chinese. And my father says, no, nothing wrong with that. And I said to him, do Italian restaurants ever get owned by anyone else like say Russians and he returned and looked at me and said no no that won't happen <laughs> I said that's that's it so Italians can take any any restaurant yes can their restaurants be taken no not more than once <laughs> someone might try that but it won't happen again and certainly not by that guy who would have to put himself back from pieces it's so funny my dad was one of the most honest men I ever knew at one point he became the lawyer for the housing authority in New York. But the thing about that is that you have to, it's a kind of a, oh, I hate to, you know, uh, slam people like this, but it's kind of, they're not crooks, but they get a piece of everything. They sell this to get the tiles for the floor or the elevator from this. And everybody has to take some money 
And my dad didn't take the money. Wouldn't he say, you know what, I don't want anything from, from this. Let me just handle the cases that come up. And that's the only guy they could never trust. They can trust another crook because then they're all the same. But they can't trust a guy who says, you know what, thank you, I don't want the money, you take the money, I'll just handle these cases. Uh, so he was only there a year. He had clients. I remember coming home from baseball practice and seeing there'd be someone, one or two guys sitting in the den, and they'd turn. Folks, it was it was like they were from Guys and Dolls. It was still that odd. It was like casting people came in, and I, now they were nice enough. They were, they were very nice because it's, oh, it's my dad's their lawyer. And there was me, hey, here's Larry. Hey, Larry. Hey. And then they'd always say, hey, you, you want a transistor radio? Because we're selling those now. Whatever it was, they had something that they were selling. Again, selling is in quotes. They had cases of transistor radios. So he took one from his pocket. Here, you know, use this. doesn't have a battery yet, but they can use batteries, you know. They're fine with the battery. And uh, my dad would always say, no, no, hand, hand that back. You know, now, you know that. He doesn't want to do that. He doesn't take, you know, anything. And I always thought, I was a kid. I was 10 or 12. So I thought, but he just gave me a radio. My father would say, you don't need a radio. Thank you. Don't do that any, when, you come, when you come to my house here. And uh, that guy, by the way, one of the lead guys, and I don't want to say the names because they changed their names a lot, but he gave me once, this was a gift he gave me, 40 or 50 Playboy centerfolds, just the centerfolds, not the magazines. And so this was roughly from Playboy centerfolds from 64 to 72, something like that. And I thought, of course, you know, this was the greatest thing since the sun began shining. Can you imagine that? I'm just about at the Playboy age. I'm about 13 or 14, which is just prime territory. And he gave me a stack of these things, and my dad didn't see it. And I put them in, I'll never forget, I put them in my night table drawer, and I decided I'll sell these. I'll sell these to my friends for a dollar each because they're going to want to see these as much as I do, which was true, by the way. But at one, we'll never forget one night my dad and I were watching a ball game, and my sister came in. She was mad at me for something, and I love her to pieces. We get along great. But she was really mad at me, and uh, she came into the den with the stack of Playboy centerfolds. And she said, whatever she said didn't matter. Here, why don't you show Dad these? Show him that you, you, know, you, you read these, you watch these, you look at these. And she threw them on the floor, and they kind of spread out. And, you know, it's a funny thing about family. I was a little... A little embarrassed, but she ran out, and I was sorry that she was upset because then my dad picked one up and unfolded, looked at it, and he looked at me, and he just said, are these yours? And I said, well, yeah, I got them from Tom. And he said, my dad, I remember, he started kind of a little small laugh. He was just laughing because his 13-, 14-year-old son was becoming, <laughs> I guess, a young man and had 47 Playboy centerfolds in his night table drawer. But that's how weird it was, by the way, that to go to people's houses where everything is stolen, hey, that's a nice couch. Should the, should the price tag still be on it? Oh, yeah, yeah, let me take that off. One of these guys, by the way, one of these guys who actually had a gang. Now, this is not gang in the way you think of it. 
it's gang in sort of like the 1950s, 1960s way where the gang is three or four other guys, and they all wear dark shirts with light ties under the suits. It's like an old Superman episode. So the gang all calls him boss, but it's like, hey, boss! And they were really like that. The guy who was the boss was himself. Well, he was a crook. They were all crooks. He was. He would always say to my dad, hey, hey, Mr. Miller, you know what? Uh, I think you need another car. He also sold, he sold everything. He sold everything he could get. And he would sell used cars to my dad. I don't know where he got these things, but they were never very good cars. One I remember was a Simca. S-I-M-C-A, is that what it is? It's, it's a French little sports car. I think Not sports car. It's like a tiny, tiny car, pre-Toyota Corolla. And I'll never forget my dad used to take me around that they were very small. And he used to say more than once as a sign of pride, here, watch this. They have two different horns on it. And the, the horn, as you can imagine, the thing was like, <laughs> and then he'd press the button and it would go, <laughs> it would just be like a quarter tone higher. And he'd say, one is for the country and one is for the city. See, if you're driving around France and you want a horn for the city, you want something that goes like this, <laughs> and then when you're in the country, you want this, <laughs> it was so just a tiny, I didn't even know the difference between the two. But he was always very proud of that. And then they'd fall apart. One was a Chrysler, uh, like a 55 Chrysler. One was a DeSoto that had, oh, the uh, the the, but, the push-button transmission on it. And then the rear-view mirror was on the dashboard of the car, not coming down from the windshield. One time, he said to my dad, i got a good one for you now. I'm, I'm telling you, I've got a great one for you. And he'd sell them whatever these things cost. My dad always paid for it, but they were, you know, four, five, six hundred dollars. And he gave him a 1964 Plymouth Fury Three. It was a sedan, four door sedan, meaning it had a post on it, so it was white and had a red interior. And you know what? We loved that car. The four of us, the whole family, when we when we'd get in to go to Brooklyn to see my grandparents. We we loved that car, and it had plenty of room, and we loved it, except it smelled. It it smelled. It it, it just smelled. Now, it, it wasn't an overpowering smell like you think you're going to throw up, but it really began, especially for a half-hour, 45-minute ride, you'd say, gee, that, it smells, this place smells terrible. The car smells bad. Now, it's in winter. You've got to keep the windows closed. It's just, geez, it's, it's really smelling bad. And finally, my mom said to my dad, would you please call Irwin up and find out what's wrong with this car, why it smells so much? And my dad called him up. He said, sure, Milton, what's up? And he, uh, how, do you, how do you like the car? And my dad said, well, we love it, but it smells. The guy instantly said, well, sure it smells. And my dad said, well, why does it smell? And he said, Milton, if a car has been in the East River for three months and you take it out of the East River, it's going to smell like something, right? Now, where have you ever heard that before? And then he said to him, plus, when, once they take the body out of the trunk, that's going to smell for a while, too. And my dad said, there was a body in the trunk of this car? It was in the East River? Well, yes, that's why it smells. Because you can hose out the back there, but it's still going to smell. You mean smell like the body? Yes! So they both thought the other guy was crazy. You know, I could tell when the other guy... Um, hung up with my daddy, went back to his wife, said, boy, I'll tell you, that Miller is crazy. He's he's amazed that the car smells. Well, isn't that the one where you took out the guy? Yes, I'm, tell I'm trying to get him to notice. 
We took out a guy and we got it out of the East River. And you know what, folks? It was a great car. But we only kept it for another couple of weeks because my mom and dad were honest people. And they immediately said, we have to get rid of this. And my mom said, well, call him back. And my dad said, I can't call him back. I'm not going to call him back and say, you have to take this car away from me now. And uh, so what he did was he just gave the car away to get crushed or he sold it for $50 or something or other. This is the same guy, by the way. He always called my dad when he got arrested for something because they all went to this whole gang, went to prison for two and three years at a time. It was never really heavy stuff. But this was a really serious thing they got, uh, they got arrested for. They spent a year and $80,000 in cash because they wanted to steal these construction site big wooden uh, spools that had the copper wire on them. So they wanted to steal these because the, the copper ones are worth a lot. So they figured if we invest $80,000 in all this trucking, all this electronic goods, all these Con Ed outfits and uniforms, then we can just pull in there in the middle of the night and uh, say hi to somebody, just chat with someone, and load these things on the truck. And it worked. But here's the only, here's the only drag. They stole it successfully. But it wasn't copper. It wasn't platinum. It was zinc for some reason. They got a set that was made entirely of zinc, which when you added them all up, came to being worth just less than the $80,000 they put in on it. So they put on a year and all this effort, did it successfully, not only made no money, but they actually lost money and then got arrested. Again, this was when, as Jimmy Breslin said, this is when crime was still funny. They're on trial in the uh, one of those the, the federal courthouses downtown in Manhattan that you see in so many movies, and there's a there's a, one of the police detectives on on the stand giving the serial numbers of how they caught them, the serial numbers of of uh, one of the reels there, one of the big giant spools of of cabled wire, and the detective says, uh, "Would you and would you give us the serial number, please, uh, Lieutenant?" And he says, "All right, the serial number is two one two five 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 one two one two." which my father then closed one eye and thought he heard right, and he looked at one of the other lawyers there, and the other lawyer just motions, shh, don't say anything. And my dad says, didn't he just recite the phone number for information in the city of New York? And it was. He had said 212-555-1212. And they sat there. Then the, the, uh, the detective leaves. Everybody gets convicted. They're in the courthouse. They're about to be sentenced, so they they break for lunch, and my dad takes them down four or five flights into the into the belly of of these huge courthouses, where they had a cafeteria there. So, you know, it's like a movie. You take a tray and you walk down the aisle, and you take a sandwich and you take an apple, and you get a coke. You do something, and so this guy and his gang, the three guys in the dark shirts with the light ties, the three guys are taking sandwiches there and stuffing them in their shirts. They're eating donuts and not paying for them. They're taking things and stuffing them in their pants. They're taking half. It's like a gang of John Belushi's in Animal House, but they're not kidding around. And they're taking all these things, and my dad's leading the line. They're in the federal courthouse. They're about to be sentenced for this, and they're stealing all these things. And my dad looks back, and he's just appalled at them, and the leader of the gang sees my dad, who just looks at him, and the leader leans over and says, Hey, Mr. Miller, we're crooks. 
And that made me laugh so much. He said he couldn't stop laughing. Oh, so that's the reason for it. So once you're a crook, you keep being a crook, no matter where you are, what you're doing. Oh, well, that explains it then. Hey, Mr. Miller, we're crooks. Oh, okay. Well, that's why. And they go up and they eat their stolen sandwiches. And my dad just sits there doing a crossword puzzle. You know, and this is the same guy, by the way, when they were on trial. This is all true. You can't make this up. He was, uh, they called the, the case. My dad stands up. He's not at the table. He's not in the courtroom yet. And the judge looks at my father. My father says, Your Honor, I don't know where. He goes back out to look for him because, remember, they're in custody. So they're brought in. He sees the guy in a holding cell. The guy organized a crap game in the holding cell. And my father walks up and he goes, Hey, Mr. Mr. Mel, how are you? He said, What are you doing? You're on trial now. The trial started. You know, please, well, let me let this guy just finish shooting. They're playing craps there at this guy. He had a head that was brilliant in one way, but it was just, it had the whole word crime stamped on it. So can you imagine that? My father said, pick that up or leave it there, but get up now. And my dad was a kid. My dad was like a 27-year-old night school lawyer. My dad would come home and my mom said, how was the day? And he'd say, you wouldn't believe it. Boy, I'll tell you, I miss that. I miss that very much. I miss all those guys very much. And uh, you know, it's funny. One time, my dad and I got drunk. One of the uh, neighbors had a kid bar mitzvahed, and we went there. Just he and I. My mom was sick, and well, we didn't get drunk. He had a drink, and I had a drink, and then we both had another one, and then both had another one. We probably had four or five drinks, but we were laughing together. And we were talking about some of the girls there. And then to celebrate this, we went to, he he drove me and him to a local supermarket of Deitch and uh, on the way home. And we got a lot of locks, two pounds of locks and a lot of bagels and some things and, and tomatoes and slices of onion and brought that all home. And my mom was there. Remember, this is before cell phones. So my mom was saying, what, 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 what are we do, do, doing? And, of course, she looks at my dad and me. I was probably 19, and the two of us had just, well, red farmer's faces, you know, that just we looked like we were about to be hanged or had just been hanged, you know, either way. And and she she just said this was not the time to be angry. She took the food, and my dad and I, well, had some bagels and locks and watched a ball game on TV. And a week or two after that, she told my dad just to stay in the bedroom and watch some TV because she wanted some time the same way with me. And she had gotten, she didn't know anything about drinking, so she got, she'd gotten a small bottle of scotch. I don't mean an airplane bottle, but like a smallish bottle of scotch. And she said to me, would you make us a couple of drinks, please, the way you had one with Daddy? And I just made, there was a little club soda there and, a lemon, and I could put a piece of lemon in. We really didn't make any drinks at all. I just made a couple of those and put something in it. And uh, and then we each had one. We went into the den and sat there, and we clinked glasses, and she took one sip, and I took one sip. And, you know, we just started talking, and that was what she wanted, really. She just wanted the time to sit with me and say she had done the same thing, and she just had that one sip, and I just had the one sip, but it's a very sweet memory, and that's the way our life was in those days. I've never forgotten that, and I never will. That's why when they passed on, my mom did, and then a year later, my dad did. 
and he still lived in their house, our house. And at the time, though, I learned something because we went out there to get a couple of things and to sit there and talk about them, my sister and her family and me and mine. And you know what? Once people don't live in a house anymore, once they're gone, once they've passed on, I don't mean that they've sold it, but once the life they put into the house is gone, it doesn't feel like your house anymore. It's okay. It should be like that. But it doesn't feel like anything important anymore. There suddenly is just carpeting going into the wall and some wall moldings and some painting that's a little chipped. And you look around and just think, how do you like that? It'll be a house for someone else, but not for us. And that's the way it should be. And you know what, folks? That's a great lesson for me in life. I've, I've never stopped thinking about them. I loved them then, and I love them still. And you know what? Remember, if you walked out of bed today and had a job to go to and a home to come back to and someone who cares about you, folks, the game's over and you've won. And that is as true as it's ever been for me. I hope it is for you. We'll see you next time. Well, you know what? I I I, I thought it didn't. The, the thing.